But we've talked recently about how we are engaged in a battle whether we like it or not. And if you look at the battles throughout history, warfare has taken on a different look. Once upon a time when people went to war, they would find a big open field and they would line up and they would face each other and then they would move toward each other. And then when they got close enough, they would just start wailing on each other. American Revolution, for example. The British and the the Continental Army would line up in an open field and they would start banging their drums and they would start moving toward each other. When they got close enough, they would start shooting. When they ran out of bullets, they'd fix bayonets and they would charge each other. And in the movie that came out probably about 20 years ago, Mel Gibson started a movie called The Patriot. And he plays a guy named Benjamin Martin. And in that movie, Benjamin Martin's character is based on uh, a real-life character named, real-life person named Francis Marion. And set in South Carolina during the American Revolution, Francis Marion figured out, you know, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to do something differently because the Continental Army is not faring too well here in the South. And so uh, Marion was known as the Swamp Fox. And so he engaged in a tactic known as guerrilla warfare. That's what we know it as now. And guerrilla warfare is defined as uh, small groups of combatants using hit-and-run tactics. And so his small group of this sort of ragtag militia that he got together, farmers and workers from the local community, and they get together and they're doing things that disrupt the British Army. This well-funded, well-organized, well-trained group And all of a sudden, they are frustrated because they are fighting an enemy that they can't always see, can't always see coming. And we certainly saw that. I remember studying American history. And like many of you, we get to studying uh, the Vietnam War. And that is certainly what was going on in Vietnam, wasn't it? They were in the jungles of Southeast Asia and they were fighting an enemy that they could not often see. And the reason I bring that up this morning, church family, is because that's the kind of battle that we are engaged in. Paul writes to the folks in Ephesus uh, in Ephesians 6 and therefore he's writing to us today and says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And church family, that's one of the toughest things that we can have trouble acknowledging is this idea because we are so focused on what is physical what we can see what we can touch what we can hear and feel and there is a spirit world that if we fail to acknowledge on a regular basis we are doing ourselves and we're doing our faith 
a tremendous disservice. Paul says it very clearly. We are fighting against an enemy in the unseen world. And the good news is uh, that we can do something about it. And when you, uh, when you do battle, it is imperative that you know the tactics of the enemy. Football season is right around the corner. And, uh, and so uh, as, we, as we get ready for football season... Uh, whatever teams we root for, whether it's Lewis County High School, whether it's the, the Tennessee Vols, uh, whether it's the Vanderbilt Commodores, whether it's the Tennessee Titans, week after week, what are those coaches going to be doing and some of the players? They're going to be looking at film. Why do they look at film? Well, because they want to know the tactics of their opponent. And why do we need to understand the tactics of the enemy? Well, we need to know what the enemy is going to use against us. And the only weapon our enemy, the devil, has to use against us is deception. Last week's message looked at the, the origin of deception. That it happened early on with humankind. That it happened in the garden. We're very early in Holy Scripture when we get to the fall of man. And what we see there is what was the tactic of the enemy? It was deception. Eve even says to God, when he says, what have you done? And she said, he deceived me and I ate it. And she names it right there. It was simply deception. It's a con. That is the only weapon that the enemy has against us. The problem is, if we're not careful, we buy into the lies. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, we can live life as a new creature, a new creation. And I'm having some trouble this morning. If you can advance that slide, please. And uh, so, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I'm going to stop there for just a second to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Because verse 2, Paul writes, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, this is the only place in New Testament Scripture that I believe that phrase is used. But church family, let's not miss it. Paul's making reference to the enemy there. He's making reference to Satan. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us who lived among them at one time, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, 
we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, that word flesh is used. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that Greek word sarks that is translated flesh. And of course, Paul is not talking about literal skin here. He's talking about our human nature. That when we're left to our own devices, what is it that we desire? What is it that we crave? And so he's using it very clearly in that context. That all of us also lived among them at one time. He's including himself. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why were we created, church, in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do? How many times have you heard people say, how many times have you maybe said it yourself, God has a plan. It's something we hear all the time. And I got to say, as someone who thinks about this stuff an awfully lot, I think I hear that and I think, well, yeah, he's got a plan, but he gives us free will. So let's not ever fall into that trap of thinking that when we do wrong, that it's part of God's plan. No. Sin is never part of God's plan. We say that again, church family. Sin is never part of God's plan. No. We exercise our free will that he has given us and we engage in sin sometimes because that's who we are when we're left to our own devices, our human nature. But... This right here, Ephesians 2.10, is the closest scripture I can ever come up with with the idea that God does have a plan. That God is at work. That, you know, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There are things that God's Spirit reaches out to us and calls us to do calls us to engage in on a daily basis. And then we have a choice, don't we? We either engage in those things and we do God's work or we ignore those things. We talk ourselves out of it. We listen to the wrong voice 
it's easy for us to do that sometimes. But regarding sin, the devil uses a tactic when it comes to sin. Last week we looked at the first two lies, this week three and four. Number three, it's not that big a deal. And that's one of the things that Satan whispers to us. Oh, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. No. When you talk about that person like that, it's not that big a deal. When you use your language to run somebody down like that, it's it's not that big a deal. You know, the things that you do when you're out with that certain group of people, the things you do to your body and with your body, oh, it's not that big a deal. And why does the devil want us to think that it's not that big a deal? Because if we buy into the trap that our sin is not that big a deal, what are we going to do, church? We're going to keep engaging in that sin over and over and over again. And if we're children of God and we're engaging in sin repeatedly, what does that do to our relationship with God? We allow sin to drive a wedge between us and God. We choose to separate ourselves from God because we don't deal with that sin. We were talking this morning in our uh, Sunday school class, some of us, uh, about some of the differences in Jonathan and David. I'm sorry. Some of the differences in Saul and David, those first two kings of Israel. And someone made a point that's worth making. A point that I've tried to make over time. That one of the biggest differences between these two men is that one had pride and did not deal with his sin. That the other, when he engaged in sin and was confronted with it, said, I have sinned against God. And we know that that's David, the latter, that is able to say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. And at that point, he repents. At that point, he owns his sin. He has a repentant heart. He is remorseful about that. And church, that's what God asks us to do. Because we are going to sin. The deacons, the elders, the preacher, everybody is going to sin. But what God asks of us is that we take an inventory of that sin and that we approach God's throne of grace with a humble and repentant heart and we ask forgiveness of that sin rather than be somebody who just buys into the con buys into the lie that it's not that big a deal try telling Jesus when he shed his blood on the cross that it wasn't that big a deal Try telling our Heavenly Father that it's not that big a deal. Sin was a big enough deal that He sent His Son. Write that oft-quoted verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world 
Right, church family? That He gave His one and only Son. He gave Him in death. Jesus gave up His life for us. He conquered death for us. He took all of our sin and shame on His shoulders. As Bill reminded us this morning, that it was for nothing that He did, but that He was taking on our sin. And so how can we look at the cross and think for one second that our sin is not that big a deal because it is Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is what church? it's death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord lie number four no one needs to know no one needs to know no no one needs to know and why is the enemy so concerned, so preoccupied with us not telling anyone else? Because when we don't tell anyone else, when our sins remain in darkness, that's where the devil thrives, is in darkness. And that's where the devil says, I've got you. I've got you. Because you're keeping that sin a secret. And as long as we keep that sin a secret, then the devil has something to hang over us. As long as we keep that sin a secret, then the devil is going to be reminding us of it. Isn't he, church? How many times have we been reminded of our sins? How many times do we remember what we did the good news church is that we have the opportunity to confess our sins James chapter 5 says confess your sin one to another doesn't say you got to go up in front of the church and tell everybody everything right that's not always helpful that's rarely helpful okay but it does say, have somebody in your life, have that accountability partner, that person that you can trust with your stuff, that person that you can say, man, I've been struggling with this. I have really, you know, you know I've struggled, we've talked about this in the past, and I was doing better, but boy, it, it's this right here. I've told the story before. I, I told somebody in a Bible study uh, just a few days ago that my wife, some years ago, told me, she said, you know, she said, the stuff you confess, she said, that's not the stuff you've got to worry most about. She says, it's those things you don't talk about. And she said, your downfall is going to be your anger. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, y'all, you're, you're right. Didn't feel good to hear that. But given a little time to let that sink in, I'm thinking, she's exactly right. And so church, 
there are things that we might talk about that we think are our downfall. Oh, I'm not a very patient person. And oh, I could do to be more generous and, and uh, you know, more forgiving. So those things that we mention to people that are some of our weaknesses, are they truly our biggest weaknesses? What is it in our life that we're holding back? What is it that we don't tell anyone about? What are our secrets? Because church family, I promise you, when your secrets see the light of day, you remove Satan's most powerful weapon. Because he can no longer hold that against you. When you confess that sin to someone else and it sees the light of day, he can no longer whisper in your ear, hey, remember this? Because it's seen the light of day. It's been confessed. You've given it to someone else. Church family, let's not buy into that trap that no one needs to know. Let's let the sins in the darkness see the light of day. Let's share them with someone else. Let's give them to God. And let's deal with that. Because when we do, we're disarming the enemy in a very real and effective way. Proverbs 28.13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Philippians 4.8 is what Jeff read uh, to us this morning. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, why is he telling the folks in Philippi, and therefore telling us today, that we need to focus on these things? It's because what we think about, church, is what we'll do. Let me say that again. What we think most about is what we'll do. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I don't need to do that? Or something that I often use as an example, it's food, right? Okay? If I don't need to eat sweets... I don't need to eat sweets. I don't need to eat sweets. Well, Greg, would you like any dessert today? Yeah, I'd love some cheesecake. Yeah. I'd love the apple pie a la mode. At Hank's Diner. They know what I'm going to ask. Do you have any chocolate pie today? And every once in a while they say, no, we're out. And I say, oh, praise God. Because it's hard for me. Because it's, it's a light dessert. Doesn't, doesn't, you know, make you feel all bloated when you're finished with it, you know? Yeah, but if I'm, if I'm constantly thinking about what I'm not supposed to do, that's the stuff I'll do. 
people that say, I'm not going to gossip, I'm not going to gossip, I'm not going to gossip. Well, did you hear the latest about so-and-so? You know, I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to lust. There it is. Whatever it is we focus on is what we're drawn to. I can't remember what the, the theory is called, but when people are driving down the road and they're focused on not hitting something in the road, what do they often end up doing? Hitting the thing in the road. Okay, there's an actual psychological name for that. And it escapes me at the moment, but you get what I'm talking about. And so that which we're focused on. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, don't focus on the food you're not supposed to eat. Focus on that picture of yourself when you used to look skinnier. You know, focus on what you're trying to be like. What are we supposed to focus on, church? We're supposed to focus on that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. If we focus on those things, then we're going to be drawn to those things. Like Romans 12 says, right? The renewing of your mind that we've talked about in recent weeks and when when Jesse and Hayden and Scotty were filling in for me some weeks ago. Church family, we can control our thoughts. We control our focus. And let's focus on those things that are good, those things that are pure, those things that are admirable, excellent, worthy of praise. Let's focus our thoughts on Jesus. And in doing so, church, we will be a little more like Jesus. Let's not buy into the lies of the enemy. If you are with us this morning and you have not yet put on Christ in baptism, we give you the opportunity when we sing the song of invitation to come and say, I'm ready to give my life to the Lord. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that He died for my sins. And we will allow you to leave it all in that watery grave and come out of that baptismal water a new creation. If you're here this morning and there's something that you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ for, then we offer the invitation for that reason as well. Let's stand and sing.